With CI Futures, you can access AI-powered market forecasting for as low as $20 a month. Get 94.7% market forecast accuracy for over 1,000 assets across commodities, currencies, equity indices, economics, and stocks. With weekly updates, one-month and three-month error rates, and top 10 and bottom correlations, you can rely on CI Futures to help you make informed decisions. Join a growing number of satisfied users who have already transformed the way they invest with CI Futures. Don't wait. Start forecasting with confidence today for as low as $20 a month. Hi, and welcome to The Week Ahead. I'm Tony Nash. Today we're joined by Deerpoint Macro. Uh, we're joined by Fabian Wintersberger, and eventually we'll be joined by Albert Marco. So um, this week uh, has not been a boring week. There's been quite a lot going on this week, and we, we really haven't had a boring week for quite a while. Um, so the first thing we're going to talk about with Deer is uh, U.S. banks, and is there kind of a looming credit crunch coming? We're next going to talk about the ECB and Europe's banks with Fabian. And uh, and finally, we'll wrap up with Albert talking about the debt ceiling, uh, both the politics around it and kind of the reality of it. And uh, I guess, will we ever not have a year where there's a dramatic debt ceiling um, kind of crisis? So, dear, let's get started off with you. This week, obviously, you can't avoid it. We've seen a lot around U.S. regional banks, right? Um. This chart on the market cap of U.S. regional banks uh, was published earlier this week, and we're looking at the, the value of regional banks being about a fifth of what they were in January, which I think is pretty shocking when we see it in one place. Um, so you put out a great tweet this week showing that uh, deposit rates are pushing uh, depositors out of banks and into uh, money market funds. Um, the reasons are pretty obvious when we look at the chart at the rates uh, that they're getting in money market funds. I guess the real question is, how do depositors catch up? Yeah, so that's the the real question. And I, I think if we look at what's happened over the last 14 years, um, you know, um, it, Mike Green actually touched on this a couple of days ago, and I, I quoted him in that tweet. It's what what could banks have really owned um, to be able to pay, you know, four or five percent on on deposits? Um, and I mean, the the answer really is is nothing, right? Because if if you look at the only thing that has really yielded four percent over the last you know, 14 years or so, it's been in the high yield market. And then obviously you have all the credit risk that's associated with that. Um, what's also now been exacerbated um, is the stickiness of those deposits. Um, and I touched on something uh, last night as well on, on another post um, where I was kind of uh, looking at some data that the New York Fed posted. Um, and essentially what they found is that um, if, if you're to look at a 1% change in the effective federal funds rate, um, the the actual beta for deposits is about 26 basis points. Um, 
and for money market funds, it's about 88. Mm -hmm. um, so the elasticity um, of money market funds is uh, it's it's much easier for them to fluctuate along with the um, you know the the change in the effective federal funds sure. rate, but like I've said, just over the last 14 years, deposits have just become so sticky. And I think that's broadly a function of the fact that there hasn't been anything, um, an investment grade paper or otherwise, that would have allowed them to actually be able to pay 4% on deposits. And I'll, I'll kind of in that here as well is even I know some people say, well, you know, they can, they can go to, um, you know, the, um, they they have the ability through through you know excess reserves and you know they um, the Fed's rate you you get the Fed rate plus fifteen basis points and obviously banks um, can then pay deposit holders at a rate below this obviously to ensure kind of that net interest margins are suitable but even I mean that is something that has just now happened you know where you have a federal funds rate at you know four hundred or you know five hundred and twenty five basis points plus the fifteen that they get um, you know. Broadly, over the last two years, they wouldn't have even had enough to be able to pay out, you know, four percent on deposits. So, I, I think that that's really been the problem for banks. Yeah, I, I was on the board of a microfinance bank in Cambodia for several years. So the precision with which U.S. banks are managed is just fascinating to me because uh, because I watch, you know, very closely, or they can watch very closely every single move that they make, right? Um, and so I think one of the interesting things about this flock to money market funds for me is back in 2008, we saw money markets break the buck, right? Money market funds break the buck. So so it almost looks like a risk-free uh, approach, but, you know, there isn't a downside now, but, you know, there are downsides both ways in, in each of these vehicles, right? So. put out a great chart that also talks about banks provisioning for losses. Can you talk us through that? And we're not quite hitting kind of 2007, 8, 9 losses yet. Uh, and definitely we're not hitting the 2020 losses. But what is this telling you? I, I actually think that it is telling us that banks are practicing practical cyclical risk management. And what I kind of mean by that is, you know, obviously everybody's been shouting that we're going to have a recession for the last, you know, two years. And when it doesn't come, they just push the forecast forward. But, I, you know, I think what banks are preparing for is some sort of credit cycle. How deep will that be? I don't think anybody knows. I think when you look at provisioning, what they're saying is, okay, we need to go ahead and start positively provisioning. Um, we need to start, you know, increasing provisions for credit losses above gross impaired loans. And this is just kind of a way I would say to manage um, possible risk that, you know, once it's there, banks are already in a position in which they have enough of a buffer um, in that ratio between, you know, provisions for credit losses against gross impaired loans that they are very comfortable. Obviously, that does come at the detriment of earnings. Um, but, you know, currently, I think a lot of U.S. banks can kind of make that up if, if you kind of look away from retail, you know, banking and look more at capital markets. I think currently with conditions there, they can kind of make up any losses that they would really feel from positive provisioning um, on the on the capital market side. Um, okay. But obviously, you know, if we have a, an overall slowdown, um, I, I just think that, you know, banks are 
being very, um, very, let's say, tactful in the way that they're actually going about preparing for any sort of credit cycle. Okay, that's good. That's respectable. So if there is tighter credit, who gets hit first? That's uh, that's a good question. I would say it's probably going to end up being, um, you know, um, middle America. Um, and then I would actually say that it probably flows through uh, through into Europe, um, you know, in kind of the offshore dollar funding markets. I mean, obviously, that gets a little into shadow banking. But, you know, what happens then is then again, you have a money market fund issue where, you know, once this credit starts to kind of contract, a lot of those European banks um, um or actually the money market funds, you know, they have outflows. Um, and so therefore they're not going to be there purchasing commercial paper. They're not going to be there purchasing certificate deposits. And then obviously that leads to funding issues on, on the dollar side um, for a lot of European banks. So I think that tightening of credit is actually probably going to have the biggest flow through into offshore dollar funding markets. And you can look at that kind of by dollar funding cost, which is the implied rate minus three month LIBOR or I guess you could use so for now, or you could look at that through, you know, cross-currency basis swaps as well. And that's kind of a gauge of dollar shortage of, of dollars against, you know, other, um, other currency pairs. Okay. So we see the most dramatic contraction in the Euro dollar market first, right? So it seizes up overseas first. So that's going to hit EMs. That's then it's going to hit other markets. Then it's going to come back to the U S is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's that's what I would believe uh, would actually happen, and that's I would argue kind of what we saw in in the beginning of COVID. You saw a really seizure um, in dollar funding markets, um, and um, you know you saw the basis widen. Uh, if you were looking at cross currency basis swaps, you saw you know dollar funding costs overall increase dramatically, um, and obviously that puts a lot of strain on. Um, you know the global global capital markets, but especially Europeans, um, just as a function of the fact that um, they don't have access to U.S. dollar retail deposits, um, but they use a lot of um, they use a massive amount of of dollar denominated, um, let's say, assets to fund long term portfolios, um, and you know other kind of funding needs that the Europeans have. Um, so I yeah I would believe it would kind of flow through in Europe and then come back around, but. Uh, I mean, we'll we'll probably see you know credit contraction at least in middle America. But if you're Apple, I don't think even in a credit cycle you're going to have problem getting sure. you know access to debt markets. Okay, but looking at those that's U.S. markets, same. is the first person that's, that's, the, same. that's the same game plan as 2012, Tony? Same game plan as 2012. So then the guys who get hit yeah, same thing. Mostly... shortages leaked over here. Okay, so domestically, is it mostly small businesses who will get hit? Yeah, I, I would I would say yes. Okay. Okay. So and, and even the NFIB, you can see that, um, like, if you look at the NFIB, um, like, uh, what is it, credit availability? Um, you know, next three months, that's that's contracted quite uh, quite drastically. Okay. And so this is, is this why the Russell is lagging other markets and why it's been so hurt over the last several weeks as well, because small company credit conditions and small companies are, are tight? I would say yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very good. So, um, and then let me kind of ask you one more question about, um, about one of your tweets about credit default swaps. Um, you put out a chart a couple of weeks ago uh, about five-year credit default, default swaps for U.S. versus European banks. Um, what is this telling us about risk 
in each of those uh, banking areas, Europe versus the U.S.? Yeah, so if if we look at credit default swaps, um, obviously they're elevated, um, at least in the U.S. context. Still not as bad as they were kind of in the beginning of, of November of 2022, um, as people can see on, on that uh, on the chart. If if um, so, you know, obviously there's still risk um, in the U.S. I do think that broadly speaking, people are, are relatively um, um, are somewhat relatively uh, rest assured that you know the fed will kind of do whatever it takes um if we look at europe on the other hand where i i think that european are lagging is that if we look at european credit default swaps they kind of lag um what are called cocoa bonds or, or tier one capital bonds and so we've seen a massive change um in the underperformance of perpetual cocoa bonds. And I think that that's actually now starting to kind of flow through in credit default swaps. So those perpetual AT1s are much more susceptible to changes. So they fluctuate. Um, they're kind of a leading indicator of what's going to end up happening with credit default swaps. And so obviously we've seen, you know, people worried about overall, I would say, banking health. Um, Europe's been, you know, um, kind of more of a victim of that uh, uh, with, you know, people talking about before the whole US thing, it was Deutsche next after Credit Suisse, etc. Um, so there's been a lot of change in investor sentiment um, in terms of, um, you know, uh, credit profiles. Therefore, we've seen perpetual AT1s underperform. Um, so that means that the yields have gone up. Um, and so therefore, I think those credit default swaps in Europe are just now starting to kind of uh, catch up with where, you know, um, those those uh, tier one capital bonds were trading up. So this is what happened with uh, Credit Suisse, right? All those AT1 investors are like, oh, this is secured, no big deal. I'm going to buy into some AT1s while they're discounted. And then the, S, uh, the Swiss National Bank came in and said, no, that's not really the case. And they blew them out. And so this is why, is this why things are a little bit more difficult in Europe? Well, I, I I would say yes, um, and I for people to kind of understand the importance. I mean, it's not a huge market, right? I think it's like two hundred and sixty billion dollars. Um, but the thing is, a lot of banks hold these. Um, a lot of pension funds hold these because they have drastically outperformed um, holding European banking stocks, right? So if you're a portfolio manager, you've done a lot better holding perpetual cocos than you have owning European banks, and really perpetuals are. They, they perform extremely well when you don't have, you know, bad macroeconomic data or problems in the financial sector. Um, yeah. But now that we're seeing that, um, I, I do think that, uh, you know, a lot of these investors are going to be on. Okay, great. So, Albert, Deer said something about the Fed will come to the rescue. And I know that you have said some things about this over the past few days. And first of all, thanks for joining. I know you're super busy, Albert, and I really appreciate you coming on. So, um, uh, but um, do you believe the Fed will come to the rescue for these regional banks? Uh, it depends on the regional bank. Okay. Uh, bigger banks that have small business exposure, specifically the loan, uh, you know, SBA loans and whatnot. Yeah, I do think they're going to come to the rescue of those banks. Um, they, you know, they sent out a warning maybe like a week or two ago where they said, you know, the coastal banks are doing their part and tightening lending and whatnot, and then called out the Midwestern and Southern banks, not by name, but pretty much alluded to it. So that, that signified to me that, you know, they, they want, they want to press the banks 
to stop lending. That's their way of tightening at the moment. They can't tighten because there's not really too much liquidity in the market for the Fed to take. So what do they do next? They use the banks to do it. They'll, they'll like, you know, like the, like other people have been saying is, you know, credit's drying up and that's right. pretty, you know, that's part of their game plan at the moment. Well, this is the traditional monetary transmission mechanism. This is how it was designed in, in the beginning, right? With the Fed providing liquidity, banks transmitting that liquidity out to borrowers. And then if the Fed wants to kind of sop up capital, then the banks are really the primary means for that happening. So, and it seems like the immediacy of this is with the smaller banks more so than with the larger banks. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, the larger banks are going to play ball, right? The smaller banks need to chase profits and they got margins and shareholders to deal with. They need money. They're, they they keep lending and they kept lending. You can see that in the housing market. The surprise 10% up you know, in sales because people just, you know, kept getting credit. And right. They need and so to stop Albert, that. I mean, I you know their perception, they need to stop that lending. And so, Albert, with, with some of these uh, coastal banks uh, that are in trouble, is it their portfolio? So to me, I, I could be wrong. And dear, jump in here. You know, is it their their deposits that are leaving or is it their lending portfolio, meaning commercial real estate and other things that is the bigger concern for investors? Albert, you go oh, first. Man, that's you... a little bit over my uh, <laughs> it's a little bit over my pay grade. But from my perception is uh it's not really so much the deposits, but the risky lending that they've practiced over over the fat, past few years. I mean, SVB was using, you know, G5s as collateral for clients buying G5s. <laughs> so it's like, right. you know, it's like, uh, that that all comes in. That all comes into in the question and, you know, how how they manage their risk, which they really didn't. So that's 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 the problem, in my view. Okay, dear, do you want to come in here? Is that is that really is that relevant and accurate? It's more their their loan portfolio than it is the deposit, say, run, which seems to largely be over. Yeah, it it's it's actually very interesting. You know, I'll be posting something on this today because I actually just finished it up uh, yesterday. But I was looking at the proportion of of loans to deposits, and so if if you look at the U.S. banking sector in aggregate, right? So the entirety, large banks, small banks, all of them combined. Um, deposits are roughly about $16 trillion. Um, Loans are roughly 10 So there's a massive base between current um, deposits to to um, to loans. Wow. Um, and then if we kind of actually start to look at the proportion of, of loans to deposits um, for the large U.S. banks, if, if we kind of break it down between large and small, um, the um, the large U.S. banks, they're about 63% in, in their ratio to, to loans as a percentage of deposits. Um, what is actually very interesting is that the small banks um, are actually far higher. So current loans account for over 80% of deposits. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you actually start to look at, you know, loans to deposits, it's actually in fact weighted much more to large commercial banks than it was small banks. And so, you know, I, I actually think that a lot of these deposit flights we're seeing is actually the fault of, of the the media, right? It, it's much like, um, what, what was that movie? Um, uh, where the bank run, I, I forget. Uh, 
you know, where he's like, oh, there's the, the if that's a bank run, if I've ever seen one. Well, if you get on Twitter, like every day, people are like, oh, Pac West is, is screwed. This right. bank is screwed. It's screwed. So like if you're just an everyday life. Joe. It's yeah, a it's a wonderful life. life. Right? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So if if you're just an everyday Joe who sees this, you know, these accounts with 200,000 followers saying, right. take your money from PacWest, what are you going to do? So I, I think that, you know, this is actually really the fault of, of regulatory oversight. I know in Europe, I know in Canada, you can't come on TV and say X bank is screwed um, right. without you know, tremendous evidence to back that up. And I mean, we saw that with SVB when they came on and they were like, oh, as you know, SVB screwed, you know, after what, like almost a couple of hours after that aired, you know, everybody was freaking out that SVB was over. And then, you yeah. know, we had the cascading effects of that. Like you can't do that in a lot of countries. So this fact that we have people who can kind of come on and fear monger, um, right. obviously if, if you don't know any better um and you're just somebody who sees this headline flash across you know your news feed or on your cell phone you're going to freak out if that's a bank that you bank at and obviously it's going to cause you to pull your deposits and i i do think that a lot of these banks are relatively healthy and i think that they're actually extremely important um so i mean i i think that it's it's also a function of just bad regulatory oversight that yeah. you know somewhat we're allowed to be able to do this yeah, I spent most of my life in Asia, as most people know. And if that stuff happened in Asia, uh, people would be in jail for manipulating markets um, in just about any market there, I think. Um, and so it's it's strange how social media commentary <clears throat> is allowed in the U.S. to manipulate markets and it's not prosecuted by the SEC. Um, I mean, this goes from... Um, go ahead, Albert. You have... You have you have all those crypto and gold bulls out there saying dollars dying, banks are ending, right. and buy this and buy that. It's shameful. I mean, the SEC needs to really step up on that sort of stuff. Yeah, they I do. mean, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen like you know, you know, very popular financial guys out there on Twitter saying the same thing just to pump their retail services. It's yep. absurd. We see that all the time. Fabian, you wanted to jump in. Um, yeah, um, I mean, as we talk about the credit crunch, um, isn't this exactly what the Fed wanted to to have? I mean, the raised interest rates, um, the, the the bond credit to tighten, and I think the main problem is um, that they kept interest rates for so long that all those banks have a lot of assets that yield um, basically nothing, yep. and so they can't raise the deposit rates. Yep, D dear, let me. I want to ask that to you, but before we get to that, I want to say. With all this information on social media and other things, your average depositor, even your well-educated depositor, generally doesn't understand the banking system, right? I mean, you just heard Albert say, and he's a very educated guy in financial markets, say, well, that's kind of above my pay grade. Like, And you know, I observe financial markets, Fabian observes financial markets every day. I don't know that I would never consider myself a banking expert. Right. So your average person saying, pull your money from, you know, First Republic or whatever, you know, it's kind of terrifying. Uh, so, you know, this stuff is is really, you know, if there is a regulatory issue, I think part of it is, is that some of these people really need to be made at least investigated to see if they violated applicable laws, maybe not prosecuted, but at least investigated. Um, but dear, I think Fabian raises a, a great point about the credit crunch. So are we going to see a significant credit crunch as a result of the Fed's actions and some of these um, 
kind of higher visibility on some of these regional banks? Yeah, so um, I, I would, I would, I think that the credit crunch is coming, um, but I, I kind of broadly adhere to Milton Friedman's um, philosophy of, of the interest rate fallacy where he said, and, and we actually saw that when interest rates were increasing recently, you actually saw increases on a year-over-year -year basis um, of, uh, of volumes of credit issuance. Um, so if you were to look at loans and leases at all commercial banks, while interest rates were increasing, banks were also extending more credit. And, and so I, I think what happens is when we talk about the low interest rate environment, we think of that through like a present value kind of calculation, where if I'm if I'm a consumer and I'm doing a present value calculation and interest rates are, you know, on a mortgage, what was the, the low? Like, I think people were getting them at like almost 300 basis points. Obviously, things become very attractive. But on the supply side of that equation, if you're the bank who has to decide who to lend to at what price, you're going to actually tighten credit. And so kind of it's a, a bit against conventional wisdom. But what Friedman pointed out is that essentially when rates are low, it's because credit has been um, too tight. And when rates are high, it's because credit has kind of been too loose. And we actually see that because once the rates start to rise, it becomes obviously more profitable for banks to lend. So what do you do? Yeah. You have that, you have banks come in and you have kind of the supply curve shift to the right where they're now going to start to supply the market with more credit. Yeah. Um, but And so it's, it's kind of this very interesting um, this interesting thing where it actually seems that um, consumers are really overall agnostic to what rate they take credit at. Um, and obviously you see that because if loans and leases are increasing, that means somebody has to be you know, asking for loans for banks to be extending credit. Right. Um, and so I, I, I actually think that now that that credit is contracting um, in the face of, of higher rates, um, you know, this is really going to pose a bit of an issue for the Fed um, as, as well, um, because, you know, now if there's no access to credit markets or if interbank liquidity uh, becomes super inelastic, um, you have massive, massive funding issues in capital markets. Yeah, the impact of Fed policy is more direct when money's tighter, right? So each time they raise as money, as the money supply contracts, it's more immediate, the impacts are more immediate for the market. And so, you know, I think all of this makes a lot of sense, but we all need to relearn this every cycle. <laughs> so, CI Futures is our subscription platform for global markets and economics. We forecast hundreds of assets across currencies, commodities, equity indices, and economics. We have new forecasts for currencies, commodities, and equity indices every Monday morning. Uh, we do new economics forecasts for 50 countries once a month. Within CI Futures, we show you our error rates. So every forecast, every month, we give you the one and three month error rates for our previous forecasts. Uh, we also show you the top correlations and allow you to download charts and data. You can find out more or get a demo on completeintel.com. Thank you. <laughs> so um, so let's, let's move on to Europe and Fabian, um, Deer had a, a chart about five-year CDS in um, in the U.S. versus Europe, and you sent me a chart that that you did asking, are European banks really in better shape than U.S. banks? So, can you talk us through that? And 
Are, are you worried about more kind of wreckage or distress in European banks? Um, not immediately. Um, I think um, European supervision has been much better than in the US um, and we didn't deregulate financial markets as much. Um, that doesn't mean that some banks might have mismanaged interest rate risk, but um, yeah, I think the, the problem has started, um, as we can see in the chart, um, after the, uh, during the GFC, um, European and um, US banks went down, mm -hmm. but Europe's banks never recovered. And that's, um, in my opinion, because of the, because the ECB never raised interest rates. And so banks um, had, and you know, the bread and butter of banks is, is to, to lend money and, and yeah, rates were so low spread. And that's exactly what you said. If interest rates are, are too low, then the banks thinks about real economic investments. They say, well, why should I lend money for, for two and a half percent if I check, cut if I just can put it into treasuries and get one and a half or so? Right. And or with negative interest rates, they're punished for holding money, right? So it's yeah, you know, it, it just it, it makes sense to me. And their their profitability was uh razor thin. So yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So um, can you help us, you know, what is the ECB doing uh, in terms of the banking crisis? We saw Madame Lagarde speak earlier this week. We saw a 25 basis point rise. And um, do you think that's the right pace? And where do you think they'll head next? Well, I, I was hoping for a 50 basis point increase because I thought it was justifiable. But um, yeah, I think she 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 referred to the to the bank landing survey um, on why the ECB just raised by twenty five basis points, and um, yeah, in the landing survey you you have you can see that um, drop in landing growth um, across the board. Um, I think um, demand for corporate loans in the first quarter was um, had the biggest drop since two thousand and nine. But on the other hand, you have um, you have um, growing net income for the banks, and, and they had um, extremely good numbers um, in earnings. Mm -hmm. So I'm not quite sure if they took the the the, the correct um, path. Um, I think, um, and as um, yields have dropped prior to the to the meeting, and so I thought, yeah, they they have the room to go for fifty. And and maybe then they could um, think about what to do next because now we, yeah, we just know for sure that there's another twenty five basis point hike coming, and yeah, I I I don't know. I think um, the ECB is praying that inflation will drop similar to the US, <laughs> because yeah, otherwise um they are in a very tough spot. Yeah. Um, and I'm not so sure about that. Um. Because um, if you if you think about why I mean inflation is is that high in the, in the euro area because um, on the one hand the ECB is tightening and on the other hand governments are handing out fiscal stimulus fiscal stimulus fiscal stimulus you yeah. get um, yeah 
price caps for energy for consumers. Now, um, I think German economic minister Habeck um, talks about price caps for German industries. <laughs> and yeah, who's going to pay the bill? The government pays the bill. And if the government pays the bill, it's you paying the bill. I mean, if anybody has yeah, the, the budget for it, Germany has the budget for it, right? So... <laughs> Tony, this this is this is exactly what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where politicians have a short term view of their yeah. their political careers rather Absolutely. than you know sound economic policies. Yep, yep. So, um, and and let's be honest, it's central banks and fiscal spending that got us here, right? Um, yeah. And if you pay people to stay at home for two years. Uh, you know, you have to turn around at some point. And so for all the slack time people had in their jobs and for all the slack that we had in the economy and in the fiscal environment for two years, the other side is extremely painful. And some people have been saying that for a while, but nobody really wanted to believe them. So, you know, it, it's a yeah. tough spot. So in Europe, Fabian, is there, uh, so are, are the local banks as stressed as some of the regional banks here are in the US or is there a pretty uniform kind of view of banks across Europe? Um, it's it's hard to say. Um, I think um, currently the, the regional banks are in, yeah, in a good situation, I think, because yeah, because um, the, the regulation works better than in the US. Um, and we have another another positive thing, which is positive for the banks, of course, because um, I think you had it in the US too. You had um, credit guarantees by the government, and in Europe they're still in place, in many in many countries. They, so they never lifted it. They're, they're handing out credit, and yeah, and the bank lands because they know they get the money anyway. If the if the if the data falls out, you get the money from the government, and yeah. So I think that may be helpful that the banks will continue to lend. And um, basically, it's exactly what um, Russell Naper talk about, talks about, um, I think, since 2020, that that's the way how to keep um, credit flowing and to keep inflation a bit higher so you can bring um, the debt to GDP ratio down. Yeah, we may have to do that in the U.S. again yeah. for a short period. I mean, I, I don't know that there's any other way around it uh, without having some pretty hard uh, hard lessons learned. Um, so, I mean, I could be wrong, but it's, it seems like yeah. we're headed there at least for a, a, a temporary period. So, um, okay, thanks for that, Fabian. Um, Let's talk about the debt ceiling now. Everyone's really favorite topic, I guess, aside from banks. Um, Albert, I know you're all over this, and I know that you talk to folks on the Hill on a regular basis. Um, and you you sent this great tweet out um, earlier this week. Someone said that the U.S. government, Mark Zandi, uh, who's at Moody's, said the U.S. is going to run out of cash on June 8th. And you said, lol, okay, sure. LOL, okay, sure, right? So... So the debt panic story started a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago. I don't know. To be honest, to me, it feels like the same fake drama that we see every year. 
Um, and I think a lot of Americans are just cynical about the debt ceiling uh, discussion. So now that it's May, we keep hearing that the U.S. government's going to run out of money by a certain date. From your perspective, do most Americans really care about that? Like, we kind of have an antagonistic relationship with our government, right? So on some level, most Americans just kind of shrug shoulders. They're like, okay. So what's the thought, the popular opinion there? Well, I mean, from the public's point of view, they're... They don't care if the government shuts down. They want them to shut down and stop spending money. But I mean, for for the markets, which is what we're really what we care about, um, debt ceiling is is a bit of an issue. I mean, it, it's it's an issue only because of what the narratives that it provides for market movers, right? That's that's the only issue because we're not going to run out of money. It's not. Right. It's just not going to happen. Yellen's going to prioritize what she needs to, and you know, the United States will be fine. Um, the problem is. Uh, pretty much in DC at the moment for the, for the, for the Republicans and the Democrats to come together to get a bill done. It, it's they're, they're so far apart at the moment that I don't see any kind of resolution happening before June 1st, whenever the theoretical line of death sure. is that they, that they put out there because uh, McCarthy, if he caves, uh, he could be ousted as a GOP, as a GOP leader, which then would cause a second. bigger problem yeah. in a second. And because, because people don't realize that, if he's ousted, there's no process to get bills done until they find a new leader, which could take weeks or months for, for this oh, yeah. matter. And you know, Biden and the Democrats want a clean bill with, you know, infinite spending and yes. zero restrictions, yeah. which is just outrageous. And it doesn't even have a chance to even get to that point in the Senate with Sinema and Manchin coming out against it just today. But they don't have 60 votes for that. I don't think any Republicans would even um, go for a clean bill uh, on the debt ceiling. So it's something that, you know, we're going to have to deal with because it's going to be a scapegoat for the markets. And, you know, we have to, uh, you know, keep an eye on it at the moment just because of the narrative. Right. And so for people who aren't in the U.S., you know, the, the House of Representatives has what we call the power of the purse. So a lot of this budget stuff has to be approved by them. And Kevin McCarthy has a very delicate coalition in the Republican Party to stay in power. And if he doesn't keep some of these budget hawks on his side, he will lose his seat. Uh, someone will call a vote. He'll get a vote of no confidence. There will be no uh, majority leader with the Republicans. And so no legislation will come to the floor. And so that's right. You know, then the legislative branch is deadlocked, right, until somebody else comes and be a very difficult fight to get something uh, something done, right? But I think it was important, Albert, to also explain to people, especially outside of the U.S., the, the view of the debt ceiling from kind of the people who are kind of exasperated by D.C. versus the view of the debt ceiling from the markets who, you know, who deep in their heart know this is going to be resolved, but play to the narrative just to get it done as quickly as possible, right? And so... Um, so will the will the U.S. government actually run out of money? And I guess, again, this is kind of a technical thing, but will U.S. government employees go without pay? I mean, this is something that always comes up with the debt ceiling. You know, those the pure the, the poor bureaucrats of the U.S. government, are they going to go without money? Uh, some will. Some will. And it'll be it'll be for a short amount of time. And, you know, right. it's, it's more of a political question where it depends on which government which which workers go without pay that'll maximize the pain for the opposition that's just the way right. that's the reality of it i mean it could be you know 
teachers or you know something in the government they'll just they'll, they'll target somebody in the government yeah. that's got like vacation time coming up but they're not getting paid technically so right. but no i mean there's not the, the government's not the u.s is not going to run out of money until about september anyways right so exactly. this whole june first thing is a little bit you know silly right so the executive branch always uh cuts the most visible jobs right so it's the people Correct. that say national parks during tourist season who are showing people around. So they have to close national parks to disrupt people's vacations. It's people that say maybe the VA so they can pull on heartstrings around healthcare. It's, you know, those sorts of guys who, who are being kind of cut, but make no mistake. Those guys always receive their back pay, even though they're not working, they will always be compensated for the time that they were off. So, Nobody is going without money. It may be delayed, but nobody is going without money. Nobody is going without health care. Nobody is going without benefits, right? And so these guys are yeah. always get a big paycheck at the end of this for the time that they didn't work. So they're literally just taking time off, okay? Um, Pretty much. So um, when we hear uh, statements that are, say, quote, kind of the full faith and credit of the U.S. US government, right? Um, you know, we have these guys who were 140 years old on Capitol Hill and the executive branch talking about the full faith credit of the U.S. government. What does that mean? Is I mean, does that mean anything? Not to me, it doesn't. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's nobody else in the world. So, like, I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, it's just it's just PR jargon for them to, you know, right. push out agendas and narratives. That's all it is to me. Right. These are these are uh, sympathetic words that people use to get emotions on their side. And so, you know, again, I think most people who who hear this, for some reason, it touches their heartstrings, but it really doesn't mean a lot because everyone knows that the U.S. government is going to pay their bills. And so, of course, how, how do you expect this to play out, first of all? And second of all, will anything change this time next year? No, I mean, the, the, the most likely scenario is they get a one year funding deal with some spending cuts and probably leftover COVID money out there, which the Republicans have been trying to get rid of anyways. Um, I mean, Biden realistically is going to have to he's going to have to negotiate at some point. It's just when and I think it'll probably be towards the end of May or early June. And, you know, you could have a little bit of drama for a week or two, but, you know, I, something will get done. It always gets done. It always gets done, right? And my guess is it'll go into the second or third week of June just to make it really painful on all of us so that we don't want to read well, well, any news course. anywhere. <laughs> no, of course. And this is this is the this is political season now because the primaries yep. are starting to gear up, you know, campaigning and whatnot. So uh, you know, Biden and the Democrats and as, as you know, same thing with the Republicans want a scapegoat things you know right. if the market drops we, they want they need a scapegoat yep. so that's feeling it is let's see what party takes the brunt of it yeah so let's let's look at um uh kind of the next week okay we've seen a lot of banking stuff happen over the last week and a lot of you know we saw uh, apple report and it was good then it wasn't so good and you know so what do you guys expect to happen in markets kind of over the next week in the U.S. and Europe? But is it more of the same? Are we on this kind of kind of uh, down cycle or um, are, are we going to see chop as different, say, data like today's uh, NFP come out? And it's 
higher than people expected. So maybe it's changing sentiment one way or another. Albert, why don't you get us started? Yeah. So, uh, you know, for the week ahead, I mean, honestly, for me, is what the market's going to price in for a pause versus a rate hike. I mean, today's numbers definitely show that another rate hike is probably coming. Um, aside from that, you know, it's, it's regional banks and how much, you know, how much pain they're going to go through over the next week and, you know, what the, what the, what the narratives are around that. And I don't, I don't really see a solution for that until, Congress uh, agrees to up the FDIC limits to 500,000, which the GOP has no appetite to do. So, you know, I think the next few, you know, next week into two weeks is uh, regional banks and a little bit of topsy turvy. I mean, you know, you would expect a little bit of a sell off because this market's way overvalued, but God knows with these, you know, you know, tech earnings beating. Yep. All right, Fabian, what what are you seeing for the next week, uh, especially in Europe? Um, I see basically more of the same because yeah, Chop. I think um yeah, and I think that that probably yields will yeah, I think long term yields they they won't rise much. Um, I think they will yeah, edge lower mm. a bit because um yeah um I think um it started on on Wednesday with 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 Powell this week um. I think that the markets um, just doesn't believe any of the higher for longer talk. <laughs> and yeah. And yeah. And if you look at, at, at Fed history, um, yeah, it's probably justified, especially in a high inflation environment, because um, I think uh, I've read that um, in, in, in environments with high inflation, the Fed basically cuts um, the next month after they reach the peak. Right. <laughs> Okay. And in in a low interest rate environment, I think it is four months. And yeah, um, I actually I wrote about that in in my Substack today, that I don't think that that Powell is done yet. Right. And yeah, and and um, I checked the the Fed watch tool, and I think that the probability of a pause was was around ninety nine percent. Yeah. And. That'll go yeah. down over the next month. Yeah, I think so too. Because um, yeah, I, I listened to the press conference and he was really hawkish. I think he was I, I didn't expect him to be that hawkish. He always talked about excessive demand, excessive demand, um, wages. I mean, um what I liked about it that he um said that wages do not cause inflation, because I think that is correct. Um and that you see wage gains um, at the end of the expansion um, as um, profit margins drop and workers get a higher share until um, businesses say, yeah, we can't afford it. <laughs> You're mm. fired. And that's it. That is um, what we're heading. But yeah, it will take time. And It'll take time. Yeah. It always takes time for markets to observe that. And dear, what do you expect over the next over the next week in markets, do you expect the banking situation to uh, continue to get worse, or do you think that things will stabilize after you know a couple of days? Yeah, I, I'm I'm hoping that things stabilize. I, I'm not sure if you uh, saw uh, Hugh Henry's um, interview with Bloomberg, but I I actually think that he posed a very important question, and it's the only way to stop deposit outflows 
does the federal government come in and do like what they do with hedge funds where they essentially lock in money and they say like you can just you can't withdraw your money or if you want to withdraw your money you have to wait you know three months or six months or you know kind of we'll call you back so i i actually think that's a very interesting question um because i mean what at least with you know the 08 there was something that the government could do they could come in and they could backstop the mbs market but what do you do to stop deposit flight right that's that's i i think the real question and i i think the only way to do that is by putting some sort of cap um on on the ability to be able to pull deposits but then at that point what kind of i mean you you're you're kind of I, I wouldn't say nationalizing the banking industry, but at that point you're putting massive oversight if you're telling people you can't withdraw your money. Right. Yeah, I a, mean that's look, it's a temporary yeah. backstop. And that's what the Fed was designed to do, right? I mean, the Fed was designed to be a backstop for monetary policy and banks. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's that's my general understanding. Well, that's that's the thing. And I I I I'm relatively optimistic. I, I watched your um your interview with um with um bob um and i know that they were talking about some banks in south carolina obviously that's my home state um and there's there's one bank there it's extremely well run i mean quarter over quarter i think the like uh, deposit growth has been about 10 percent um they are extremely conservative in terms of lending practices and i mean it's it's been like you know kind of unnecessarily targeted because of everything that's happening um and so i mean i i you know look at the regional banking sector and i i remain somewhat optimistic but i I do think in the next couple of weeks there could still kind of continue to be some some pain and i think some banks are going to continue to kind of be uh you know in the crosshairs of of you know people within uh within financial markets yeah Yeah, and and going back to hugh's interview i did watch it um, he had me until he said that crypto is really the only way out of this. So is that, I mean, t- tell me what you think about that. Like, is kind of crypto the solution to this? Sorry, I know people uh, are going to hate me. No, for no, 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 for me, for me, absolutely not. But, uh, I mean, I'm, I don't want to say I'm, I'm a fiat maxi, but I, I think the fiat system works relatively well. Um, I mean, but uh, at least with what we have, I, there's no way that we go back to a gold standard. And I think that there's even less of a chance that uh, we go to a crypto standard. But I, I you know, yeah, this that's, is that's um, that's clear because um, and governments can't load up on debt and they want to load up and on debt. They want to, to, to spend money. They want to buy votes. That's right. Because that's, that's right. how politics works. You buy votes and. And therefore, I think, um, I mean, it's in the nature of, an, of a fractional reserve banking that um, if there's panic, um, yeah, then it doesn't matter how good the bank is capitalized because, um, yeah, there's not enough around. And yeah. yeah, and I think now the problem is way too big. And it will, if, if something happens on a, on, a, on a huge scale, then you've got no other chance than to bail out the banks. Yep. Bail out all of them and just flushing them with money. And you may unleash um, an, an extreme wave of inflation then. But um, yeah, that's the only thing to do because um, yeah, the system, if if it if it had been about yeah, 60, 70 years ago and you said, yeah, if you do bad management and um, then we let you fail, yeah, the, probably banks wouldn't have lent out 
so much um, compared to the assets. But yeah, they did. And they learned that they will get bailed out anytime something happens. And yeah, yeah. we said some that's bad precedents. We set some bad precedents in 2008 and 9, right? And so yeah, exactly. it's really hard to unlearn those. Uh, and, you know, at this point, should should people today be be punished for the bad precedent that was set in 2008? Yeah. I actually don't know the answer to that, right? It's a really hard Yeah, me neither. So, yeah. So, so in general, is it fair to say, and I know Albert had to go and I appreciate him coming on, um, but in, in general... Do you guys believe there will be some intervention by the Fed and the Treasury to stabilize the regional banking environment, even if it takes an act of Congress to do? Dear, what do you think about that? Sorry, I, I missed that. My, my internet okay. got kind of glitchy. That's all right. Uh, repeat so, so in general, just kind of in, in the terms of the weeks ahead, maybe not the week ahead, you believe, uh, is it fair to say you believe that there will be some sort of intervention in this regional banking issue to stabilize the regional banking environment, even if it takes kind of an act of Congress, which is actually what would be required to to reenact that 2008-9 uh, solution that we had to backstop the banks? I mean, I, I think at some point they they have to, um, and I, I mean it's 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 kind of ironic because you know we had Powell come out last week and say the banking sector's fine, and then you know fast forward to this week, <laughs> right? Everything's exactly. in chaos. So you know, I I mean I I think that this is where if you're the Fed, you have to start. And I've I've used this example a lot because people are like, ah, SVB isn't that big or FRC isn't that big, but we're looking at at that in like the American context, right? So mm -hmm. if you took the, there's six large banks in Canada. If you took the three largest or like the three smallest of the banks, um, Regions, which is based in Birmingham, Alabama, is larger than like all of them, right? So what we consider a regional bank for many nations is like large banks, right? So, you know, I what I worry about is if they don't backstop this and this continues to happen, one, what does the United States do where we have, you know, 70% roughly of GDP um, is foreign direct investment inflows, right? Like foreign direct investment inflows as a percentage of GDP, I think are about 70%. Where if you look back, you know, almost a decade was like maybe 20 or 30. I don't have the data, but it's gotten drastically larger. And so how do we protect that foreign direct investment when people look towards us and say, this is a nation that has, you know, relatively good kind of, you know, rules and regulations in place to protect investor money and that's why people invest with us um and you know now you look at the fed who's just kind of saying we're just going to let this you know this dumpster fire run wild what does that mean for for the united states from an outflow perspective as well as if they don't do something like this obviously has spillover effects right it Absolutely. no longer can just stay right. contained in the united states right yeah. and um you know so i think that that's where they do have to where congress has to come together and what always makes me laugh about that whole thing is even if you went back to the trump administration the democrats were saying no we need two trillion and the republicans were saying we need one trillion but when you're talking about like really the difference between one trillion and two trillion is it really all that important <laughs> right so you it know really i mean it, 
I said, is it really all that important? We're still talking about tremendous amounts of money, right? Two trillion for one party, one trillion tremendous. for the other. And it, yeah. it's just like, you know, so I, I think that that's where, you know, they're, they're just getting into gridlock to get in gridlock. But I think now if we look at what we have to do, um, I mean, you know, making sure that we support the, the kind of these banks that provide funding to the backbone of America is extremely important. And uh, I'll kind of land it here. If we talk about, you know, productive capacity and, you know, real economic investments, that's what a lot of these regional banks do, right? If you're a farmer yeah. in Nebraska, you can't go to JP Morgan because if you send off a loan application and it goes to some guy at JP Morgan, he's going to be like a farmer in Nebraska, like who cares, right? right. But we're, that's, that's where a lot of those regional banks provide that yep. extremely important funding yeah. to that backbone that actually is what I would say increases total factor productivity increases. And yeah. I know total factor productivity from an economic standpoint is a bit uh, nuanced. Don't, some people don't, uh, don't like it as a measure. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, it's but, it's, it's the same thing like in, in Germany and Austria. We have a lot of regional banks. And then I think there are studies that this is a main cause um, that um, you have, that we have. And I think the U.S. Have, has also um, many hidden champions who, yep. yeah, because they get the funding from the regional banks and they get treated um yeah they know each other and they yep. treat them like they're stars so yep. to say because and, that incremental uh, loan or that incremental business opportunity yeah. is big for them right yeah. it wouldn't be yeah. for a, a globally systemic bank so guys yeah. this is great thank you so much for this let me end this on this i'm old enough to remember when the 780 billion dollar tarp program was was the largest program ever put out and now we're throwing around a trillion here, a trillion there, right? <laughs> so so yeah. it's it's just really strange to see where 15 years goes and what happens over that time. So this has been hugely valuable. You guys have covered a lot of my thoughts about banks and a lot of my kind of questions. So, um, so thanks so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Have a great weekend and have a great week ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you too.